Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Great Loop Radio, brought to you by America's Great Loop Cruisers Association. We're dedicated to sharing Great Loop information and inspiration with those actively cruising, planning for, or dreaming about a Great Loop adventure. This is Kim Russo. I'm the director of AGLCA. Today my guest is Tom Hale, who will be sharing with us details about navigating the Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway. We will start at the Florida-Georgia border, as that's the area that loopers on the traditional seasonal schedule will soon be approaching. And we hope to take you through the Georgia and South Carolina portions of the Atlantic Intracoastal, time permitting. Um, Before we officially introduce Tom, I want to take a moment to recognize and thank our Admiral-level sponsors who support AGLCA at the highest level. They are Curtis Stokes and Associates, Dog River Marina, Passage Maker Trawler Fest, Skipper Bob Publications, and Waterway Guide Media. As always, we encourage our listeners to support these businesses that support the Great Loop. Tom Hale, welcome to Great Loop Radio. Thanks for joining us again. Well, you're most welcome. Glad to be here again. Uh, For those of you who are not familiar with Tom, um, actually, Tom, why don't I let you give a little bit of about your background, because you are a um, presenter at many places mm-hmm. on the Intracoastal mm-hmm. Waterway, which is the topic we're covering, which is why I invited you today. And you've been chiming in on the forum with some great information specific to North Carolina. But uh, for those who don't know you, let's go ahead and just start with a little bit about your background and your cruising experience. Okay, sure. Um, first of all, I'm a, I'm a retired boat builder. Uh, I spent all my life building and repairing boats, and now I'm a full-time cruiser. I live aboard a 38-foot trawler with my wife, Christina, and our Beagle, Aurora. Uh, We've been living aboard for nine years. And um, we cruise about 6,000 miles a year. And this is now our ninth trip on the ICW. I have been one of the guideboats for Sail Magazine's uh, ICW rallies for two years. And we've privately guided boats on the ICW. And when I guide boats, that involves... uh, working, teaching, training, for planning, and navigating and the weather. I also do seminars for Sail Magazine and uh, Hampton Snowboard Rendezvous and other people uh, on subjects, oh, Passage Maker, uh, Trawler Fest, on subjects related to cruising and the ICW. So that's sort of my background. I'm, I'm sort of a boat bomb. <laughs> oh, I, also, also, I do. I maintain a page on the ICW for Sail Magazine, which has a lot of information, which it's a free Facebook page called Secrets of the ICW, and there's a tremendous amount of stuff on that page that anybody's welcome to use. Great, and I'm sure that will be helpful to our listeners as they're planning their trip on the ICW. Um, And, of course, uh, the loopers who are on the somewhat traditional schedule are getting ready to head in that direction. Many of them are on the Atlantic ICW in Florida right now. Um, So, uh, first of all, one of the things I hear so frequently when I'm out there talking to people who are interested in the Great Loop, particularly those who are primarily lake boaters, they're very concerned about the tides, particularly in the area we're going to be discussing today, which is Georgia and hopefully uh, South Carolina. So for people not familiar with the, the tides you know, and having to plan for that, give us some tips for how to handle that on the ICW. Sure. Uh, first of all, um, everyone has to understand that the ICW is really generally a very placid trip. It does take a little planning, but there should be. There's no cause for any concern or alarm. 
Um, there are, I, I happen to track 23 spots where I know there could be trouble, but there are only four, four or five that are real problems. And the other thing to, to monitor, not just the tide, but also the weather, and let me explain why that's important. We are currently weathered in here in Brunswick, Georgia, which has changed our schedule going up the ICW, which is fairly common. Uh, but there are a few places ahead of us where at low water, you might only have four and a half feet of water. And for most trawlers, that might be adequate, but that's four and a half feet in the middle of the channel. So for those trouble spots, it's best to plan to come through there a little bit after low tide. So it depends on what navigation software you're using. I'm a big fan of uh, Navionics and Coastal Explorer. And with both of those, it's very easy to say, well, if I get to, we'll, we'll use Hellgate because it's got such a scary name. <laughs> if I get to Hellgate on the 28th, what time will it be high tide? And so you can start looking way down the road. You figure you're going to average so many miles a day. We, we average a, a, about 50. And so I'm always looking ahead to make sure that I'm going to get to these trouble spots at about the right time. I'll give you uh, just a, a personal example from me last year and something that all loopers will, will appreciate. When you're going up the Hudson River, you will have current, it's not the ICW, I know, but the story is good. You know, the current is against you at up to four knots. So we planned to go up the Hudson River last summer, and we were going to hit the current beginning of the flood in New York City and carry it up the river. The trouble is, we got held up for three days by bad weather in Annapolis and couldn't get down to Cape May. And when we finally got to Cape May, we were held up for three days by bad weather. Now we're six days behind schedule. And the tide works on a six-hour six hour schedule, uh, six-day schedule. So consequently, instead of having the current with us up to Hudson, we fought it every step of the way. And that is why you have to constantly be planning. And the weather doesn't affect the tides, but it does affect when you're going to want to go up the Hudson or through Hellgate. Because if you get held up due to bad weather, you're going to have to maybe find a new town to visit for a couple of days. There's so many things to see and do. You shouldn't be on a set schedule anyway. Uh, but if you're if you're off schedule and you're going to be approaching a one of these shoal spots at you know near low tide. You really want to try and hole up somewhere for a few days, restock your uh, groceries and go visit a nice village, uh, enjoy a nice dinner, and just wait so that you don't have to hit these spots at low tide. Mm -hmm. And Tom, for um, those who really d just don't have experience in this area, you, recommend, you recommended hitting these spots um, shortly after low tide. So yeah. that may sound counterintuitive if you have a, a deeper draft boat, if some of these areas are, you know, four and a half feet or so. Explain why that's the recommendation. Excellent question. Um, the, most of the trawlers and powerboats doing the loop probably draw between four and five feet. And most of these shallow spots probably have about four and a half feet at low tide. And in this part of Georgia and South Carolina, you've got six, seven, eight, nine feet of tide. And um, I have my beagle decided it wants to get in my lap. Sorry. And consequently, uh, 
if you just wait a few hours, you go from from having you, you'll have an extra foot of water under you, then two feet of water under you, then three feet of water under you. All the way up at high tide, you've got an extra nine feet of water. So at that time, you don't have to worry about anything. And two feet after high tide, excuse me, two hours after high tide, you still have an extra six feet. But here's why you want to be careful going through these trouble spots on a falling tide. Uh, in round numbers, two-thirds of the water tide moves in the middle two hours, which means in a place in Georgia with nine feet of tide, in the middle two hours, tide is level, the water level is rising six feet in two hours. That's three feet an hour. If you run aground, you may be losing an inch of water in five or 10 minutes. So that is why you want to be very careful in these shallow spots, not to hit them at half tide falling, because if you wander out of the channel, which we all do, and you run aground, you might be waiting there for four or five hours till the water comes back. Got it. And it makes perfect sense once you explain it that way. But that actually at one point in time, that did confuse me. Um, but then I spent an afternoon aground in Charleston <laughs> and realized that if the tide <laughs> had been coming up, it would have floated us right off. <laughs> so um, I guess those are some of the things you learn along the way if we don't have the Tom Hales of the world to, to teach us those. Um, well, I hope everybody understands that even the Tom Hales of the world leave bottom paint here and there along the ice. <laughs> you know, it's just part if you haven't. If you haven't run aground on the ICW, I, I think you're you're deceiving me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and we did a, a one of these podcasts a few weeks ago um, with Brad Pickle of the Atlantic Intracoastal Waterway Association, and hopefully some of these places that you're talking about are going to get some relief soon with some dredging. But let's go ahead and move on to having you kind of you know take us from the Florida Georgia border. So start with Georgia. Um, heading north, since that's typically the direction loopers are going. Um, mm -hmm. And I think most loopers, if we ask them, the average is about 50 miles a day, which is about what you tend to do. So kind of walk us through the first stop. You know, what are some navigation tips on that first leg? Um, what are your favorite docks or anchorages, that kind of thing? Okay. Well, um, Florida itself is, is is relatively easy. You just kind of go along, follow the buoys, and don't bump into anything. Once you get into Georgia... Uh, you'll you'll go through Fernandina Beach, Florida, which is just a great little town. And then there is the uh, Cumberland Island National Seashore, which is a wonderful anchorage, beautiful island to, to walk and explore. If And I recommend you take the time to do that. But once you clear that and you start heading into Georgia, the first sort of challenging area is Jekyll Creek at Jekyll Island. And here's the good news. There's good water coming up into Jekyll Creek, and you can go to Jekyll Marina, which is wonderful, and wait for the tide should, the, uh, should you be hitting it at low tide. But that is a spot that may have, may have only four feet at low tide, but you'll get nine feet of tidal help. So that's, a, uh, that, that's sort of your first trouble spot. But the, the beauty of that is you can take a, spend a night at Jekyll Island Marina, tour the island, and um, it's a, that is a great stop. Once you clear Jekyll, uh, you're, uh, there's Golden Isles, which is a nice stop, but that's not very far. Brunswick has generally uh, a great reputation, and people like to stop in here because it's relatively inexpensive, well-protected. 
uh, a very easy ride to a grocery store. And from here, you have to watch the tide at a place called Little Mud River. Now, the Little Mud River is probably five feet in the channel, but the trouble, Kim, is these channels are not just getting shallower, they're getting narrower. Uh-huh. And that's really the challenge is that, sure, there's five feet, but you've got to find it. Now, I will make a suggestion right. that the Navionics sonar charts have gotten to be very good. They're not perfect. I I ran aground in Fort Pierce. When Noah said I had nine feet, Navionics said I had 13, and we hit the sand hard with four and a half foot of draft. So uh-huh. nobody's perfect. Uh-huh. Um, but... I have found that in Little Mud River, the last few times through there, I could, what we say, drive the white. I could stay in the white area of the Navionics chart, and I'll always watch the depth finder, but I could get through there, and it looks to me like there is probably four and a half, five feet of water at dead low, and since you're in an area with eight, nine feet of tide, an hour after low water, you've already got almost a foot, mm-hmm. and you can run through there and... uh it's a, uh, it's just one of those places you want to watch. But you, it's not far from Buford, uh, excuse me, from Brunswick, so it's easy to time your approach. And on the other side, there is an anchorage called Duplin Creek at Sapello Island, and Sapello Island is uh, also part of the National Seashore. There is a village out there of about three mile hike, but there's a, a landing ramp, a launching ramp, a landing where you can go ashore and hike on shore, and it is a Beautiful anchorage. So if you're going through little mud late in the day to get your tides right, pull into Dublin Creek for the night, and you'll be glad you did. You may find you stay there an extra day just because it is such a lovely little anchorage. Um, we, we like to spend a lot of time there if we can. That's our goal for tomorrow. Uh, Kim, I did overlook one little bump on the way there between okay. Brunswick and mm-hmm. Dublin Creek. You'll be going down the uh, oh Buttermilk Sound. There is a red mark 208. There is an active captain warning about a shoal that's building there. It's, it's sort of no- normal to slalom your way up these, the ICW and you would be even though you're going northbound, you might be tempted to get on the red side of the channel that R208. You shouldn't. Mm-hmm. That one okay. there, you want to stay off. All okay, right? great tip. Yes. So that's a, that's a little one. But um, then little, after a little mud, um, it's a pretty easy day to go up to uh, uh, Beaufort. Mm-hmm. And that's always one of our uh, favorite stops. There are several great marinas, and uh, you can also go to a you you can all what did I say Beaufort? Yes. I meant Isle of Hope. I apologize. Okay. I, I meant That's Isle okay. Of Hope. I thought we had skipped that whole area. Yeah. No, no, <laughs> I no, thought no, maybe no. you were making a long run that day. <laughs> no, 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 no. Isle of Hope. I I just spoke to them because we're going there in two days. Mm-hmm. Um, Isle of Hope is like Sapello Island is just past another trouble spot, the infamous Hellgate. So Hellgate is. Mostly due to its name, the scariest part of this whole trip, and it's it really does only have about three and a half feet at low water, mm-hmm. but 
there are anchorages and and uh, marinas before it, and we happen to uh, uh, have visited several of these. Uh, Kilkenny Marina is an old spot, but it's very convenient, and you can wait there uh, for a night to catch the tide in Hellgate. Uh, or if you can slide through Hellgate, then you can get into Isla Hope Marina late in the day. Isla Hope Marina is a gorgeous little town, uh, very close to Savannah. It's a great place to stop and Uber into Savannah to explore the city. It's got loner cars if you need to run out and do errands. So you can stop either side of Hellgate. If you come, if you're tide is wrong, you go to Kilkenny Marina. If the tide is right, you go all the way through to Isle of Hope, which is just a few miles beyond it. So, Tom, is that your recommendation for if, for those who want to visit Savannah? Um, do you recommend could, that they take a side question. trip up the Savannah River or stay at Isle of Hope and make that fairly easy drive in? I have heard nobody that I recall saying that there was anything good about the Savannah River. And I may not be giving Savannah its do, but it's a very commercial river. Marinas are far from the city and fairly expensive. So either Isle of Hope or Thunderbolt, either one of them are great marinas to explore the city of Savannah. Excellent. Uh, if you need any service work done, Thunderbolt is a terrific boatyard as well. And I'll just mention another marina that we have stumbled across called Coffee Bluff. That is up the little Ogeechee River. We went in there once when Isla, we had to come through Hellgate late in the day for the tide, and Isla Hope had no room. And the Coffee Bluff people, A, it's a beautiful marina, another lovely town, and the staff is just so friendly. So keep that as an idea of a, of a third option in the Savannah area. Okay. Tom, we're going to take a quick break right here and listen to a message from one of our sponsors. When we come back, we'll pick up uh, from there at Isle of Hope Great. and continue northward. We'll be back in a moment. Great. Thank you. Did you know that every mile of the Great Loop is covered by both the Waterway Guide and Skipper Bob? Use them to plan your Great Loop cruise and learn about the places you can visit. In the cockpit, important navigation info is always ready at your side, plus marina listings, anchorages, services, and so much more. Each Skipper Bob and Waterway Guide is updated yearly, and waterwayguide.com and skipperbob.net keep you current with navigation alerts, cruising news, fuel prices, and special deals. With the Waterway Guide and Skipper Bob at the helm, you'll always be on course. Order yours today at the AGLCA ship store at greatloop.org. Waterway Guide and Skipper Bob are proud sponsors at the Admiral level with AGLCA. Okay. We're back on Great Loop Radio with our guest today, Tom Hale. Um, Tom is leading us northward on the ICW, and he's got, just gotten us um, to Isle of Hope Marina, uh, which is basically in the northern part of the, the small Georgia segment of the Intracoastal Waterway. Uh, Tom, so continuing, what would be the next typical stop for loopers? Well, as you come out of, uh, you come out of Isle of Hope or, or Thunderbolt, you'll be crossing the Savannah River, which has a lot of shipping. So you, and you'll be coming out a little bit blind. There's a, going northbound, there's quite a bluff on the right hand, the starboard side, the south side. Uh, this is a great place to have AIS if you have it. Um, if not, just you're going to be crossing a river with pretty good current and some shipping. So you need to watch that as you go across. That's, that's relatively minor. 
issue, but it's really the first time you're going to see some heavy commercial shipping since uh, you were down in South Florida. Mm-hmm. Uh, then you're into fields cut. A fields cut is another area that uh, I feel best uh, navigated using sonar charts. Uh, it's deep enough, but it's fairly narrow, and the sonar charts have identified the edges fairly clearly. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, coming out of there, we usually run from there. That's I'm, I'm taking a quick look. From there, a lot of people want to go to Hilton Head. Uh, we prefer we prefer to go to Beaufort. When you go to Beaufort, a there's restaurants and shopping and uh, whatnot. But you should take time to take some of the, the carriage tours. I, I mean, I don't get anything from them. I'm not selling anything here. But we have had so much fun and learned so much by taking the carriage tours around Beaufort. Uh, it's a area that's just loaded with history. So. Beaufort's a good place to spend a couple of days, whether you stay in at the Beaufort um, downtown marina or you stay over at uh, the Port Royal Marina. They have a loaner car, and uh, Ladies Island Marina is is a very friendly place. Beaufort yeah, actually- is... is yeah. mm-hmm. Buford's a great stop. We asked um, we asked our members a few months back to just kind of list some of their favorites of the Great Loop. We were putting together a, a seminar on the best of the Great Loop, and one of the mm-hmm. questions we asked was favorite small town. And uh, Buford was one of the top choices. Many people mentioned Buford, South Carolina, as as their favorite small town on the Great Loop. So definitely uh, a good stop to make. Well, I would certainly agree with that. Coming out of Buford you will have to transit the area that's known as Ashapu Kusa Cutoff. That, that's getting kind of skinny as well. Um, we have, we found coming south some very shallow water. Um, and uh, I would just caution you again, plan to go through this section at, on a rising tide. Now, you, most of us can make it from Beaufort to Charleston in a day. But if the tides are wrong and you have to hit um, Ashapu Kusa cutoff later in the day, there's a terrific anchorage at a place called Steamboat Creek, which is off the Edisto River. Was that pronounced Edisto? Yeah, Edisto. Uh, Edisto. Uh, it's as with all the Low Country, it's not it's not got tremendous protection from the wind, but it's very well protected from the waves. There is also a public landing there where you can take your dog ashore or just go ashore and stretch your legs. I will caution you that keep an eye out for just as you get to Edisto River, the area of the Daho River is getting a little skinny too. Um, Most trawlers will have no trouble, but it's one of those places, certainly if it's not, if it's close to low tide, just pay attention when you get into water that's a little shallower and you like, you can do what we call hunting, where you sort of wander left and right, watching the depth finder and see where you pick up better water. Um, I'm not going to tell you exactly which mark, but there's one of the government marks there that has better water on the wrong side. And we consistently go on the wrong side of one mark. But out of fairness to everybody else, I'll just say, use your own depth finder and and wind your way through there. That being said, it's not bad. Just one of those places you need to pay attention. Mm-hmm. So after that, you're you're on your way to Charleston. And wow, that is a terrific city. 
um, we we lived in in Charleston, Somerville area for a year, and March, April in Charleston is just beautiful. You'll probably need to take a marina. You'll want to take a marina just because it's so convenient. Um, there's I haven't found any decent places to anchor near Charleston. Uh, we've anchored several places, but not haven't found a decent one. Um, but if you if you can't get into uh, the uh, city marina, then the Charleston Harbor Marina over on the um, on the other shore mm-hmm. uh, is got a great shuttle service. Uh, uh, what do you call water shuttle? So you can get into town very easily from there. And you know, uh, so many people I know are trying to get up to the Great Lakes and up to Canada, and they rush through so many wonderful cities and towns. And I hope people will take time to see Charleston. I mean, Kim, you know, you live there. I do, and I actually live in the the and our the AGLCA home port crew is actually um, here in the Somerville part of Charleston, which Tom I know you're familiar with. Um, but it is a great city, and please reach out to your harbor hosts when you're in Charleston and throughout the loop, but especially Charleston because uh, I'm one of them um, and some of the other home port crew, and we love to come down and visit with loopers coming through when they're at the marinas. It's one of my favorite times of the year because it is typically a beautiful weather time here in Charleston, lots to see and do, and it's, it's when loopers are coming through, so it's a lot of fun. We do, um, as long as we're talking about Charleston, I would like to mention that for AGLCA members, there are two Docktail events coming up um, that are being held in the Charleston area by AGLCA in conjunction with some of our sponsors. One is being hosted by St. Bart's Yacht Sales, and they have their own dock adjacent to the City Marina. Uh, That's April 8th. on a Sunday from 4.30 to 7. The other is April 12th, which is a Thursday from 5 to 8 p.m. And that one is being hosted by St. John's Yacht Harbor. So for members, the details and how to RSVP for that is on the greatloop.org website under the events tab. Um, But those are free for AGLCA members. So we hope that those of you who are on your way through, as well as those of you who are local or are within a reasonable distance of Charleston and are interested in coming by car, um, please join us too. We did this uh, last year for the first time, and it was really a lot of fun to kind of get to know everybody as they were on their way north. So hopefully we'll see you, Tom, at one of those if you're on your way. Yeah, I hope so. Yep. Yeah, wonderful. Um, we uh, are now, actually Kim, just about, yeah, go, we're just about, we're just out, of about time. out of time. Yeah. yeah so we didn't uh, get as far as I had hoped, but I kind of expected that might be the case. Um, so maybe you can give us any last thoughts you have about Charleston, if there's any details you wanted to add, and then we can have you back real soon to pick up from Charleston and, and continue the rest of the South Carolina right. coast. Does that sound I'd love like to do work? that because after Charleston is one more, is one more challenging area and two beautiful cities, but I just want to remind people that you must not think you can follow the magenta line. <laughs> Thank you for that uh, we've reminder. Already, yes. We've already seen that get people into trouble. And beyond that, when you're submitting comments, either to the group or to active captain, don't say you're on the magenta line because the magenta line isn't there on NOAA charts unless you have a very out-of-date chart. And it may be there on some NOAA charts, but not others. It may be there on some Garmin charts, but that may be a different line actually than what's on the NOAA chart. So people need to understand that the Magenta line was developed in 1913, and there weren't many chart plotters in 1913. It was never meant to be a route. So you've got to be careful with that. Uh, and That's so if you're, yeah. if you're trying to make a comment about a shoal spot, don't say we were on Magenta line. Say we were half a mile from, you know, the green pole number 
two or whatever, or one, whatever. Um, okay. Yeah. You, and you, you don't want to use magenta line as a reference because many charts don't have it. Good point. And, and one kind of final question, since you are navigating the ICW on a regular basis, how different is it this season? You know, for some who may have done it before and think that, you know, they've got it handled, Following all the storms we've had in the past few years, how much has the waterway really changed in terms of how skinny the water is or where that skinny water is? Uh, the ones we have discussed in Georgia are gradually getting shallower. And mm -hmm. although there's hope they'll be judging money, there hasn't been any so far. Mm -hmm. Most of North Carolina had great success getting dredged last year, and then it all filled in from the hurricanes. Mm -hmm. Uh, the inlet called Shalot Inlet up near Southport is virtually impassable at low tide, but there is emergency dredging planned, and a friend who went through there last week said there are barges in the area. So by the time we get up there, it's hopeful that that will be dredged. It's, it's a shame that it was all dredged last year, as was Lockwoods, as was several other North Carolina trouble spots, and they all filled in from the, the hurricane. But there's good information on it from a number of sources of how to get through these spots, Again, there's nothing to be worried about. There's nothing dangerous, nothing scary. If you're on the ground, you're just going to have to either call Towboat US or just sit there a couple hours and, you know, you'll be fine. Yep. Tom, as we close up, um, just give us the uh, name of your Facebook group one more time if people are looking for sure, more information the, from you. Sure. It's the Sale Magazine Secrets of the ICW Facebook page. All right. Tom Hale, thank you for joining me. As I said, we'll have you back real soon to kind of pick up where we left off, and we'll look forward to speaking with you again. All right. We'll try and see you in a couple of weeks in Charleston, Kim. Wonderful. Let us know when you get here. Right. For our right. listeners, thank you for joining us again. Uh, we appreciate you participating. They will be back next week with another episode of Great Loop Radio. Until then, safe cruising. <laughs>